0: that we're going to republish some of Michael's excellent interviews. And if I would just stop talking, which I'm going to do presently, you'll be able to hear one of those interviews. So, I'm going to stop talking.
1: There are plenty of historical objects that are controversial because of what they represent. The plane that carried the first atomic bomb, for example. But what happens when the controversial object isn't what we think it is? What do we do then? It's time to eat the dogs. I'm Michael Robinson. Today, Maria Nugent talks about Captain Cook's first encounter with Aboriginal Australians at Botany Bay, a violent meeting that has come to represent the origin story of Australia's colonization by outsiders. The encounter itself has been symbolized by a bark shield said to have been used by the Indigenous Australians defending themselves against gunfire from Cook's crew. Now on permanent display at the British Museum, the shield has come to mean different things for settler Australians and Indigenous Australians, even as historians and archaeologists debate whether it was really there at Botany Bay at all. Maria Nugent is a fellow in the Australian Centre for Indigenous History in the School of History at Australia National University. Maria Nugent, thank you so much for talking with me today.
2: You're welcome.
3: So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about Captain Cook, who he is as a figure and, and why he's such an important figure within Australian history.
2: So I guess most people know he's a British navigator, explorer, who came to the east coast of Australia on his first voyage. He did three voyages in the Pacific, but only came to Australia once, and that was during his first voyage. It was really the last leg of his. Um, voyage. And what he did in Australia was chart the east coast. So, other parts of Australia had been charted. There was a kind of outline of some of the southern coastlines, some of the west, some of the north. But the big gap was the east coast of Australia. Mm-hmm. And Cook was aware of this. He had just been in New Zealand for some months and decided, um, out of sort of three options, that what he would do on the return to England would be to see if he could knock into the eastern coast of this uh, continent that had been partly charted. And he did. He knocked in um, around the uh, southern part of the east coast and worked his way up um, all the way to the tip of Australia, which is now sort of called um, Cape York. Were there any – sorry to
3: interrupt. Were there any um, European – Colonies in Australia at that time?
2: No. So the only previous uh, European contact had been some Dutch contact in the far north, very brief in the early 1600s. Mm. In the late 1600s, Dampier, William Dampier, had come, had touched on the northwest coast a couple of times, and Abel Tasman had been uh, in the south and uh, Tasmania. So no one had uh, settled. There'd been some exploration. The Dutch had sort of come to look but didn't find anything that they thought sort of uh, worthy to set up a sort of trading post. So no one yet had established occupation. We should sort of remember that there'd been quite a lot of contact uh, in the north between um, what we refer to as Macassan fishermen,
3: That's in Indonesia? Yeah, Mm -hmm.
2: yeah. And they would come on a seasonal basis to um, what is now sort of Arnhem Land and parts of the north coast of Australia for trapang fishing. So there was quite a lot of contact between uh, Aboriginal people in the north and these seasonal fishermen, and that interaction is still sort of evident in some cultural practices Mm -hmm. and also some sites, some trees and other remains. So it's not as if the place had never been visited. It's unclear, I think, about the East Coast. Uh, there are lots of theories of uh, sort of dubious...
3: Yeah we, have our, <laughs> yeah, we have our versions of those too. <laughs> yeah. Chinese or yeah.
2: Portuguese. Uh, and they always kind of emerge from time to time and everyone debates them and everyone's looking for some sort of lost map or... Document or something. but it's so it's not terribly clear that the people on the East Coast had previous contact, although of course, in the north there was contact, quite a lot of contact between New Guinea and um, I think Aboriginal people in the northern regions. So different parts of Australia obviously have different histories of interacting um, along the coasts mm-hmm. with outsiders. And that I think that does influence the interactions that are recorded mm. um, by Cook. And others, yeah.
3: There is this iconic um, meeting of Aboriginal peoples and Cook in Botany Bay.
2: So uh, Botany Bay is the first place where Cook goes ashore. So he attempts to go ashore a few times earlier but Mm -hmm. can't because of rough uh, seas or can't get a good landing place. And eventually... After, I think, sailing for about a week or so, they come across Botany Bay, which is a rather sheltered uh, sort of bay now, just part of Sydney, but just to the south of the city. And they go into that bay and are able to, it's rather calm, and they're able to land on the southern shore of it. So uh, that is the the sort of what settler colonies Mm -hmm. uh, celebrate as uh, the first landing Uh of Captain Cook. Uh, he's kind of um, uh, there are people sort of on the headlands as he come in as he comes in who are sort of shouting and waving spears, mm-hmm. um, but he doesn't interact with them. And then um, after lunch on the first day, he he, uh, he and some of the crew members go in two boats to the shore.
3: And there's an encounter with, uh, as it's described in Cook's narrative, there's a. An encounter with aboriginal peoples on is it on the beach uh, it's
2: unclear whether it's on the beach or on the rocks but um uh, so what happens is that as they're rowing they well i should just go back a little bit so they're in the bay they're observing who's on the shore what's happening earlier in the day they see an old woman an old woman and some children mm-hmm. on the beach they can also see, I think, that there are some uh, houses or huts and so they realise that um, that is around a village and they decide that that is where they will go ashore. And earlier in the day they'd also seen some men in canoes fishing not far from the ship who sort of paid no attention to the ship. So they had this impression that in fact because no one was really paying them much attention, it would be fairly easy, I think, to go ashore and and step on land and make contact, mm-hmm. as it turned out as they um, rowed into the shore, two men came onto the rocks or onto the beach, and uh, again were sort of quite demonstrative uh, in shaking spears and shouting, and in a sense, uh, that was interpreted as repulsing them or repelling them from stepping ashore. Mm-hmm. Cook was keen to go ashore as he sometimes was in. Um, if he's been sailing for quite some time and he had been sailing from New Zealand mm-hmm. ready to, to stop to um, get water and other provisions and so he, in order to get ashore, he fired some shots um, one of which seems to have hit, I think, one of the men in the leg and mm. they retreated um, from the beach and... The, crew went ashore. So it was a powerful moment in that it was a a sort of confrontation between the owners of the land who sought to repel the British sailors coming ashore and and a sense of the superior sort of uh, weaponry of the British to force their will uh, to step ashore. And so that's seen as you know, the kind of two sides of Australia's history and is is sort of saturated with ideas around that relationship between uh, traditional owners and British uh, usurpers of land.
1: And
3: in your work, talking about this kind of story that has such meaning now Mm. to both sides, Mm. there's this object, this Aboriginal shield Mm. that... I guess, has existed in the British Museum's collections for at least since the early 1800s, but has recently become very important. You know, what does the shield look like and, and why do you think it's become such a, an important and controversial object?
2: So, so there is a shield in the British Museum's collections. It's unclear when it came into the collections, but at some point in its life as a museum object, it has become associated with uh, Cook's expedition. It's a fairly... It's a large shield. It's undecorated. It's um, made of red mangrove. It's very sort of solid, sturdy. It sort of curves around in a way that um, looks like it would protect the torso. Uh, It has a, a handle on the inside not carved into it sort of inserted into it through two holes uh, another piece of uh, wood or reed uh, that makes the handle and it also has in its center a quite um, obvious hole so it's a it's a powerful object it's it's not really noticeable from being intricate or decorated Uh, if it's on display it's been on permanent display in the Enlightenment Gallery of the British Museum, since about two thousand and eight, mm-hmm. perhaps you
3: write that it's kind of a star object within the the British exhibitions on
2: oh, it's
3: Cook and Australian history.
2: So it's been on display in the British Museum in the Enlightenment Gallery when that was redeveloped and opened, and it's uh, it's got its own little um, glass cabinet. And it's surrounded by other quite beautiful carved objects from around the Pacific and um, other sort of objects. But it's the one object on display which was presented initially as having a story attached to it. So although although it's always worded in a sort of qualified way, the shield's believed to have been uh, the one collected by Cook um, at Botany Bay in 1770. Increasingly, as it goes on public... Uh, exhibition, that qualification has sort of slipped out Mm -hmm. a bit. It was chosen as well to be one of the 100 objects by History of the World in a 100 Objects. And so that's also contributed uh, to this idea or this claim that it was the shield that one of the Aboriginal men on the beach at Botany Bay in 1770 had picked up um, from outside one of the huts in order to defend himself against the British, or Cook actually firing at them. So when Cook describes that first encounter, and Joseph Banks describes it in more detail, they mention that one of the men ran back to the huts, collected a shield in order to defend himself. And over time, the shield, this particular shield in the British Museum, some people have strongly argued that this is the same shield. They've done that mainly on the basis of features of of how it looks. Uh, its there's size. A, there's
3: a painting, isn't there, where it looks somewhat similar. It's got a little hole in it. That's that's from the time. That's from the narrative.
2: So it's not exactly from the time. So it's um it's from the year after. Mm. So when the endeavor returns to England, uh, and they have a number of objects. Banks, Joseph Banks, who's wealthy, employs some people to draw um, a lot of the material they've brought back. And there's um, one picture that has some spears in it and a a shield. And, uh, you know, at one level it looks like the shield and at another it doesn't. Yeah. So Nick Thomas, um, the director of the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at Cambridge University, has recently published um, an article in which he claims quite clearly that uh, the object in the drawing and the object in the British Museum's collections are not the same mm. thing. And he's done some some photographic work just to really show that the angle the shield in the drawing couldn't possibly be the shield in the collection.
3: You um, you have this line, which I think you say was originally stated by Sarah Ahmed, mm. saying that some some objects are sticky. Mm. I was wondering if you could talk about that.
2: So by sticky, I mean that it is an object in which a lot of investment has been made. Um, by different groups of people, probably over the last 50 years or so. And I think that's important to remember when the shield really came into view, how it came into view, and why it was so compelling, and, and why it was so compelling that there may be an object which had survived from that first violent encounter between Cook and Indigenous people in Australia. Mm. And so really it appears that it comes to notice in the late 1960s in which Australians were building up to the bicentenary of Cook's arrival, so around leading up to 1970. Mm -hmm. And again, I should say that uh, most of the scholars writing about it didn't make definite claims that the shield was the shield, but they did draw attention to the fact that there was a shield in the British Museum's Mm -hmm. collection, the provenance of which was not completely known. There'd been no documentation about how it had come into the collection, but which had some superficial similarities to the one described in the journals as well as the one that had been drawn the year after um, the expedition returned to England. Those superficial um, similarities are the hole in the centre the size, the general shape. But it turns out that many shields collected from Sydney, so we know that um, the British settlement did happen 18 years after mm-hmm. Cook, so 1770 is in Australia. By 1788, the British have arrived in order to establish a penal colony. Joseph Banks had recommended Botany Bay, where the Endeavour expedition had been, but uh, Governor Philip, who was leading uh, what's now called the First Fleet, decided on the bay just immediately north, which is Sydney Harbour. And many shields were collected in those early years of settlement. They were uh, an object, like many other sort of objects of trade, that um, made their way to England and into private or other collections. So, if yeah. you look sort of more broadly, you can find um, a number of shields which have holes in their centre.
3: I was thinking yeah. that uh, when I was reading this, that th- the idea of the sticky object—that yeah. object that um, has a lot of meaning—but it's actually its meaning is changing, and it means different things to different groups. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's so many of them, probably in every culture. Where I was thinking, ah, the, you know, the Confederate statues in the United right. States; those are very sticky objects, <laughs> yep. right? Yeah. Uh, right now, but what makes your story about this shield so interesting is it's actually sticky at like two different levels. There's the stickiness about the meaning of the shield, but then there's also the stickiness about the the provenance of the mm. shield. <laughs> is, it, is it actually what people think it is? And mm. if it isn't, then what does it mean then?
2: So we're interested in that because I guess in that article that you're referring to, we argue that it's sticky in the sense that it evokes or provokes a lot of emotion among a diverse range of people. So I said that it had gone on sort of permanent display in the British Museum and then became one of the 100 objects. Mm. And then it came back to Australia for the first time in uh, late 2015, early 2016, as part of an exhibition of objects from the British Museum that was staged here in Canberra in the National Museum of Australia, an exhibition called Encounters. Uh, it, had, it was the second exhibition of two related exhibitions, um, the first one having been held in the British Museum in 2015, which was actually called Indigenous Australia. And so... The shield had, and the shield was displayed in both of those exhibitions, but in slightly different ways. They were the same, mainly the same collection of objects, but the exhibitions had differences to them. So the shield had begun to circulate again and came to the attention of different audiences, um, particularly more prominent among Mm. Indigenous Australians. And because that encounter has been such a symbolically powerful event, you know, so sort of really caught up with myths of origin on both sides, settler Australians and Indigenous Australians, uh, scholars have shown how it's a kind of symbol of birth for settler Australians and a sort of symbol of death and destruction yeah. for Indigenous mm-hmm. Australians. Here is this object <laughs> that.
3: Has to carry the weight. It <laughs> sort of
2: carries the weight, and and again, we argue in that article that it's it's got the perfect form for that. It's a shield. It's protective. It has a hole in the centre. So if you wanted to make a prop, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the, kind the of perfect the perfect prop. prop. Um, because it's like someone's shooting, what you do is you defend yourself. The whole idea that, you know, that encounter, a colonization, has been one of um, contest, aggressive, violent acquisition mm-hmm. of land, in which Aboriginal people um, were forced to defend themselves in their land against a violent onslaught, and that the gun played a powerful part yeah. in that. Uh, and so it's even if I and my colleagues, um, say until we're blue in the face um, that the hole was not made by a bullet, a yeah. bullet or a, um, I don't think they had bullets or shot or whatever. Yeah. I don't know the specifics of the firearms, although uh, we did get an expert on firearms to look at the hole in some detail. I think that doesn't, that won't matter yeah. in a way. Some objects are always going to be um, have meaning beyond the particularities of provenance. And so I guess one of the things I have learned in this process of looking at the shield in much more detail than I did in my first work um, on Captain Cook was that a kind of forensic approach only takes you so far. Um, That cultural meanings, political meanings, what something represents is probably going to have more force than detail. And it's
3: it's interesting. Maybe this is true in other parts of history, but I think especially in the history of exploration, Mm. there is... A certain community of people who are extremely interested in getting the details right. Oh, yes. And the details, when you get the details right, then you have the true story. Yes. And so the interpretation of the story part for this community is maybe less important. But I feel very strongly, like you, that you know I, I chase things down all kinds of rabbit holes that I know aren't true. But yeah. but they're interesting, yeah. and I, actually on that point, mm. I think when we were talking or, talking earlier, you had mentioned that Aboriginal peoples themselves have a history, an oral tradition of yeah. Cook. Is that true?
2: So they do in in different ways. So when we say we must remember, and I guess maybe for your. Uh, Northern Hemisphere listeners, that mm. Aboriginal Australia is made up of about 250 different languages and different groups. And so Cook is actually kind of encountering different groups of people up the coast. So, And what happens, I guess, after Cook is they have very different histories of colonial encounter. So, of course, the people around Botany Bay, it's 17, um, 18 years later that British... Colonisation begins. It begins in their country and mm-hmm. continues, whereas um, the people in the north, where Cook was after his ship was wrecked, up around Endeavour River and Cooktown, colonisation didn't really happen until a hundred years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, so their oral traditions are different than people in the south. At the same time, around uh, the build up to the 1970s. Aboriginal groups across Australia in places where Cook never went also developed oral stories about Cook in which he becomes a kind of figure in their account of Australian history the troubles the, yeah. um, that colonization causes them uh, even today so he becomes a he becomes a sort of archetypal figure who's incorporated into uh, Aboriginal peoples oral accounts about how the situ- how the contemporary situation developed, and so he figures there as a, well, in quite different ways. In some uh, indigenous traditions, he's seen as a kind of positive figure. In others, a very sort of negative figure.
3: It strikes me that this is uh, oh, when I when you were talking about this, I think you know, in I looked mostly at Arctic exploration mm. or polar exploration in my first book, and African exploration in the second book, and there's so much in the stories that. Are, even though the you have a narrative and you have all you have sometimes you know scientific instruments barometric pressures and all that yep. there's this whole range of things that are unknowable and I've always been interested in those things but what you're providing is in a sense the the corollary you're finding those those stories mm. whose provenance is totally unclear yeah but from a group of people who've been hidden from yeah. the narrative. Yeah, yeah. I think that's really interesting. And it actually makes me it makes me think about the work that you're doing. You know, uh, Felix Driver, mm-hmm. uh, who we've talked about a little bit, mm-hmm. who uh, came out a few years ago with, um, I can't remember the name of his, do you remember what it was called, Hidden Histories of Exploration? Yes. I think it was called Hidden yeah. Histories. Yep. Yeah. Talks about, you know, we have to try to bring back the, these uh, invisible people to the story itself. And it feels very much that that's a theme that runs through all all of your work that I've read. Yeah. Yeah. Do you feel that there's, apart from, let's say, the moral impetus to mm. do that, do you feel that there's something that we learn about that history or those communities by that approach, that perspective?
2: Uh, I think that's a great uh, deal to learn there. I mean, one of the things that I've been trying to do in my work on Cook is to really um, take back that first encounter. Um, to say that something much more complicated was going on there, it's very easy just to say that that's a kind of example of straightforward conflict, as if you can understand it in very sort of simple Terms and particularly, I was unsatisfied in the way that in settler kind of memory and commemoration, implicit in its representation was that the Aboriginal men were cowards mm. or that they had just fled and disappeared, and as if they had left the scene, leaving the beach and the country available for taking. And that's really what the mythology was about. Mm-hmm. And I think that once you look much more closely at the journals and that you look, you read them with Aboriginal people, and that's what's been going on, I think, up in Cooktown and also around Botany Bay, that people are reading those accounts and they can read, I think, in between the lines because they have the cultural knowledge about how people interact with outsiders what they what they value what they understand around processes of what we might call conflict resolution how you encourage newcomers to sort of come in but sort of stay in sort of public places where you're happy for them to be but not to come any further close to other places which mean much more to you so what one of the things that is a challenge of working in, on um, exploration in Australia, and I've been working more recently with some colleagues, Shino Kanishi and Tiffany Shellam on more like inland exploration. Is that in Aboriginal culture, country, what they call country or land, is incredibly important, and you don't get big, big buildings or sites or being built up. It's just that all the meaning is kind of embedded in uh, the country itself. Yeah. And so Cook can't really see the country through the same eyes. It doesn't have the markers like established villages or yeah. um, pens for domesticated animals or crops. But clearly certain parts of the country uh, in which he sort of steps um, have different uh, meaning. So when I was reading, I think, Cook's account of Botany Bay, once you get beyond that first dramatic encounter, you can see some logic and patterns in the way that the local people are mm-hmm. dealing with this presence of of British people in their country. And I think it's it's one of just containment, really, quiet containment. It's okay if you stick to the literal shore around the beach, but you know, try to limit them coming too much further into the country. I think that's a kind of process of managing outsiders.
3: Yeah, there are meanings that he doesn't see in, no. the, in the land that are invisible.
2: No, and so the only way we could really get into that is to ask Aboriginal people, you know, or to find out much more about what matters when outsiders come into your country. And, of course, um, Aboriginal people before colonisation were dealing with outsiders all the time. They were other Aboriginal groups that they had practices for dealing with. And so one of the sort of flashpoints for me, actually, was reading the accounts that emerged in the 1970s, the long oral traditions which come from places where Cook didn't go, such as uh, in the Northern Territory. And there's one account in particular by a man called um, Hobbles Danyari in which he puts a lot of emphasis on the fact that Cook didn't say hello. I was thinking, that's curious. Why is he so kind of coming back to this theme of Cook ought to have said hello? Yeah. And I once I started to think about Cook's own account and what happened and his... Urgency to get ashore when all the signals really were back off, not yet, perhaps later, and he didn't really pay attention Mm -hmm. to that and decided to go on the front foot and force his way through with the assistance of a firearm. That got me thinking about that that perhaps is not just straightforward uh, resistance and repulsion than actually a precursor to set the yeah. conditions for a proper meeting. I might be wrong about that, but it takes, it's a speculation, but it takes the lines of inquiry into different places than just like to a quick conclusion that this was a conflict with two sides, that Indigenous people are always either uh, resistors or, as the settler memory would say, cowards or even Banks himself was inclined to say so what's interesting then when you look at what happens in Endeavour River where Cook is forced to stay for six weeks because he's wrecked the ship on the reef is that he's learned something I think from Botany Bay in which he says to his um, crew don't force interaction hang back and and what happens in that situation is after about a month the local people come forward and there's quite close interactions mm-hmm. over the course of a week or so.
3: Maria Nugent, thank you so much. This has been terrific.
2: Thank you.
1: That's it for today. The music was composed by Zabrat, make sure you check out the Time to Eat the Dogs website for podcast links and other exploration related stuff. And if you get the chance, please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps make the show visible to new listeners. And if you want to recommend a guest or make a comment, feel free to contact me at time to eat the dogs. That's one word lowercase at gmail.com. See you next week.